I'm Arthur Falls, and you're listening to The Third Web, where we explore the intersection of decentralized finance, identity, and secure computing. Recently, I visited India representing the Definity Foundation. The trip was supported by Upstart Venture Production and Consulting Group, Dunya Labs, and Advocacy Group, Encrypt. Those 10 days altered my understanding of the way technology manifests products and the driving role the needs of high-growth nations will have in defining the digital landscape of tomorrow. In this episode, I'm joined by co-founder of Dunya Labs, Kathy Guo, and co-founders of Encrypt, Nitin Sharma and Sumak Shetty. We examine the Indian startup, business, and regulatory environments. We also look at the growth of telecommunications infrastructure alongside macro demographic trends and the unique business conditions they create. Thanks for joining me, guys. Would you mind going around and uh, introducing yourselves, uh, starting with yourself, Nitin? Sure. Hi, guys. This is uh, Nitin Sharma. I'm currently co-founder of uh, Encrypt Blockchain, which is uh, focused on building the blockchain ecosystem in India. And uh, we're doing that through two ways. One is that we invest in and support projects both in India and abroad. And secondly, as a combination of community building, developer-focused events, conferences, um, and some work recently on policy as well. We're trying to help build the ecosystem in India because we, we definitely believe that this uh, whole blockchain revolution can mean a lot for, for the country. Uh, prior to this, I've had a career primarily around uh, early stage technology investing in the U.S. Uh, with a large Silicon Valley fund called NEA and then in India with a fund that I was a founding member of called Lightbox, which focused on more traditional startup investing. Uh, Sumak, maybe you next. So I uh, sort of stumbled upon Bitcoin, I think, in 2013, and I've sort of uh, been in the blockchain space since then. I've been like tracking what's been happening with Bitcoin. And after I graduated, I was like, I, I really like this technology and what can I do with it? And the best platform that I could see at that point of time to develop like our applications was Ethereum. Um, so uh, uh, late 2016, early 2017, we started building a decentralized exchange because we thought that centralized exchanges are really bad for security. Um, and I sort of built that. We launched it in August and then we realized like decentralized browsers are bad. MetaMask is bad. Uh, the blockchain doesn't scale. And uh, Nitin came on board as an advisor and we sort of realized like the space has a lot of time to mature. Uh, and so it was about thinking what what is bigger in the space? Is it an exchange or can you use blockchains for doing more in the space? So uh, that's that's what 2018 has been about, and uh, and we I've, I've been working with Nitin as a co-founder at Encrypt, uh, just developing the ecosystem, learning about different projects, and seeing like what uh, what what are these uh, things that can be done, like unlocking the power of data, artificial intelligence, IoT using blockchains. Kathy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Arthur. It's great to be here. So my name is Kathy Guo, and uh, I think that my blockchain story starts in 2015. One of my close friends was an early developer for the Ethereum Foundation, and I was completely enamored with 
the interdisciplinary and idealistic tenants that were part of the blockchain space. Uh, later on, I also joined a group of theoretical researchers, primarily based out of NYU and Columbia University, doing a lot of research around distributed consensus algorithms and at the time analyzing many of the protocol developments that were happening in the space. But my day job was actually also working for a major conglomerate and working with an Indian entrepreneur in Hyderabad in southern India and traveling kind of between the UK and the US and India. And I think that, you know, we saw an opportunity, myself, Ravi, who's the founder of the conglomerate, as well as Srikar, who is a uh, researcher that was part of the Columbia University Research Group. And we realized that there was really an opportunity to build a mass adoption and mass talent market for blockchain in India. And now, so we are the three co-founders of Dunya Labs. Dunya Labs kind of has three different functions. We have a research arm, which is primarily partnering with top Indian theoretical institutes to further kind of multi-year long-term research around blockchain. Uh, we also have an internal research team that's working more on product-specific research. And then we have a product development team, which is a developer team that's focused on building tooling for various chains and kind of building at the layer of the tech stack, which is connecting application developers and application users to protocols, because we believe that there's a lot of complexity that we can abstract away. And thirdly, we're also to uh, do stuff in community and in incubation in India. So you actually also were involved in uh, writing a book about uh, the emerging tech space in India. Is is that correct? Uh, it wasn't specifically about the tech space in India. I would say the book is more focused on entrepreneurial philosophy and different philosophies of corporate responsibility. So it wasn't primarily about technology, but I think it definitely was and touched upon themes such as, you know, the emerging technology landscape in India, the emerging entrepreneurial and startup ecosystem, which is happening, and different ways that Indian companies and Indian entrepreneurs are looking at creating not only equity value for their investors, but also social value for society at large. This sets the scene for uh, the discussion that I'd really like to have, and that is about how we can expect to see uh, blockchain uh, technology and related technologies. I think uh, I think if we're going to talk about the third web, which is the, the overarching subject of this podcast, it extends considerably beyond uh, just, techno- just blockchain. But um, how do you guys see, and I know this is an extremely open-ended question, blockchain technology um, being deployed in India? So I'll, I'll, I guess I'll kick it off. On, on, at a high level, it's a fantastic match. You know, India is full of all sorts of problems, but also potential. And it is characterized as a you know, low-trust society where there's a lot of friction in, uh, in pretty much every sector and every type of business that you want to run. And so some of the, the properties of, of blockchain, right, uh, in solving for that trust should really match really well with, uh, with, with how much disruption can result from taking out middlemen, which is a massive problem in India in pretty much every business, um, you know, other intermediaries, and, and overall, you know, uh, move towards more transparency, automation um, and and uh, even you know user control and security around data right this is uh, this is an economy which is becoming one of the largest um, pools of data in the world you know right now the, the amount of data moving through the pipes in India is is, is more than the US which is unbelievable uh, 
given how how quickly things have changed. So I think that's that's a high level view where I feel there is so much potential for disruption. Now, where does it start? Uh, I think it's starting with private blockchains, and that's a whole different debate altogether. And of course, it's starting with the financial system. So banks in India are cooperating right now to set up uh, proofs of concepts and pilots around putting some of their processes on on a shared distributed ledger. It's uh, also shown some good results in uh, the combination of a lend, you know a financier and a supply chain and suppliers. So there's one of the larger banks in India, Yes Bank, has um, done some interesting work in bringing the uh, suppliers on the uh, supply chain for automotive parts for one of their clients on a common ledger. And they've seen, you know, tremendous savings in terms of time that it takes for these suppliers to get paid and so on and so forth. And there are many, many other pilots we could talk about from the government's perspective and uh, how various departments within the government can actually collaborate. But, you know, that's that's for us, uh, that's sort of the first, uh, you know, first phase. And it's really more incremental than revolutionary. And the, the real potential is when you can have public blockchains uh, be more mainstream in India, right? And that uh, has all sorts of possibilities in the energy arena, in healthcare and education. Um, and we've been big believers in, in sort of allowing and supporting that kind of uh, experimentation to happen in India. That is currently limited by the regulatory environment uh, because we can probably go into this in more detail later in the podcast. But uh, currently, it's pretty hard for developers or users to play with crypto or access crypto easily. So most of the work right now is in the near term, next one or two years, is, is primarily going to be around around these permission or private blockchain projects. But that's not a bad beginning. From the world's, from the outside point of view, you know, I always tell people that you know you should look at India for very many reasons. But three top reasons are talent, users, and capital. Uh, there is an enormous amount of talent in this country, and everybody knows that. And I think the question is, will this be the next wave where th- hundreds of thousands of talented Indian uh, technologists and programmers and developers uh, will start companies or work for decentralized projects all over the world? And that's a very rare base of talent, right? The second is that India will now, with with you know close to half a billion networked, connected users using smartphones or data, will be a fantastic place for some of the projects to to solve problems around usability and scale. And uh, and of course, down the road, a lot of projects will also tap India for capital. That's that's kind of my take. You made the comment that there are almost half a billion connected people in India and that there's more information running through those pipes than there is in the States. And uh, Somuk, we were having a conversation a little while ago about the 4G rollout uh, that's taken place over the last... Uh, two years. Could you comment a little bit on that or, or flesh out uh, that side of things a bit? Yeah. So uh, what India is seeing is like we're, we're, we're actually not going through the same technology rollout schedules as like other countries. So like what Geo, which is uh, the conglomerate, on, it's, it's the inter, uh, telecom company owned by uh, Reliance. What they did was they, they built out this uh, cutting edge 4G infrastructure throughout the country and they, they realized the value of data. And they basically made it very, very cheap for people to access uh, the internet services, which made it affordable for a large number of Indians to like become a part of this, like access the internet for the first time, basically, and access internet services like Google, YouTube, uh, Facebook, right? And um, 
what that created was like this huge, I guess, like a swarm of people that basically just started creating tons of data. And that's that's what happened in the last two years. So I think our internet subscription has grown uh, exponentially and it's still growing. And Geo is not stopping because what Geo is doing now is like they're trying to make phones cheaper because unlike U.S. markets, like uh, the 500 million Indians that are farmers can't afford a phone that's more than $20. And Geo is basically trying to serve that market because they, they see that that can unlock a lot of potential, but they can see that their future revenue streams are going to be based out of services like this. The interesting part there is that it's not based on Google OS or it's not based on iOS. It's, it's an OS of its own. Uh, it's a platform of its own. And it, it's Indian-centric problems that will be solved by Indian, Indian developers. Um, and I think it's going to unlock like a huge, uh, it's just going to unlock a lot of potential in the country. So with all of this in mind, I, uh, I remember, Kathy, we had a discussion about the, uh, the kind of the emergence of the Indian unicorn and how for a long time there hadn't been these, uh, these billionaire tech companies emerging from India. But over the last kind of eight years, uh, we've, we've seen a number of them, uh, some of which are household names, but not necessarily in the States where most of the listener base is here or in Europe. So could you, uh, could you speak a bit to the emergence of um, Indian unicorn tech companies? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that especially in the past 10 years, Indian tech companies have really gained the kind of scale and user bandwidth and essentially uh, impact that was previously unseen. Right now, though, I think the Indian unicorns are really focused on kind of consumer facing technologies. So we have, you know, the Flipkart, the Indian Amazon, we have Swiggy, the Indian Deliveroo, we have, you know, uh, Ola, which is the Indian Uber. And these have been extremely successful customizations of existing scalable consumer tech plays for the Indian market. And I think it's quite interesting, the narrative of how these companies are able to differentiate themselves by customizing for their marketing question. So for instance, a story that I always like to tell is, um, is about Flipkart, right? And one thing that Flipkart really optimized for that Amazon in the beginning when it was trying to compete in India uh, probably failed out was focusing on this problem of, of address specification especially given the fact that uh, most places in India and roads are not very properly marked or delineated. So solving that problem and solving things on cash on delivery, given that India is still an extremely cash-driven economy and understanding kind of these market-specific idiosyncrasies is something that's very important to creating these scalable Indian consumer tech companies. Uh, And that is a story that's been pushed over the past decade. I think that one thing that's quite exciting and one reason and motivation for Dunya and, and us basing a quite distributed international team is in India is we also see this inflection point, though, of verse, rather than essentially customizing existing business models for an Indian market, we're also seeing in the past really just two or three years, the emergence of deep tech companies that are creating new business models and creating new IP within the Indian market itself and targeting perhaps even a a global demographic as its customer base, right? So, you know, we're in contact with a good amount of deep tech specific VCs and they're seeing, you know, especially this year, some very strong returns 
in certain AI, ML, you know, health tech driven sectors. And that's something that signals to us as an international team that we're moving from kind of this, you know, at first services based and then kind of, you know, market customization based trend to really, you know, pushing original IP and innovation out of India. And that's kind of the supply side that Nitin was hinting at in terms of the talent supply, the innovation supply that's really just catching steam in India and might promote, you know, some type of innovation in the third web wave as well. So what are those business models? And Oh, sorry, was someone going to uh, add to that? No, not really. I think uh, I think Kathy covered some important points that I agree with. I, I guess I'll just, uh, you know, add a couple of things that might be relevant. You know, there are about 19 companies now in India that, that are valued over, over a billion. So what we usually call unicorns. And that number is still much smaller than the U.S. or China, but, you know, that number is definitely exploding. And and th- this, there is a new wave of, of companies that are not just, uh, you know, copycats, and Kathy kind of covered it a little bit, but it's very clear to these companies today that the the, the era of copy-paste something from the U.S. or China is, is, uh, is no longer a viable strategy in India. A lot of companies tried to do that in 2012, 13, 14, and both investors and entrepreneurs essentially playing that game. And what turned out was that uh, India is not an easy market at all to make those economics work. Unlike China, which has all sorts of cultural and economic and political reasons that can uh, enable the, the local players to win, India is actually an open battleground for anyone. So India has Indian companies competing with Chinese companies competing with American companies competing with European companies all happening at the same time for this market of a billion people, which technically is 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 only a few 10 million people as as real consumers right now, because the, the, the mistake that people have made with India is often overestimating what the actual market here is. And so, you know, there are a lot of lessons that have been learned. And, and the playbook right now is don't overestimate this market. Don't think that users will uh, pay the way that they can in China or the US. Uh, And that also means that these companies have created their architectures to be very lean and cost efficient because that's the only way to survive in India. So if you can pull that off in India, if you can scale a business model and a technology architecture in India, you can probably scale that pretty well anywhere else in the world, right? So this is a great place where it's the only place in the world where you can actually use a lab of close to, you know, this massive population and, and really get your, your business model and your product uh, to operate in those, under those constraints. So I think uh, there's a lot more maturity that's come in. And of course, some local innovation is, is being seen everywhere. I do want to add uh, that it's still early days as far as core deep tech innovation is concerned. Uh, it's still hard for hardware companies to scale in India to get funding. You know, we're trying to do our part on, on things like blockchain, but you know, the ecosystem is still still young and needs many more people to come in and fund uh, and support these kinds of projects. And of course, with AI, uh, India is a little bit behind the curve when it comes to the, the talent pool, patent activity, funding that's available from the government uh, and corporations. So there's a lot of catching up to do. 
Right. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. And, and it's all about kind of um, relativity, right? If we compare the Indian market to where it was 10, 15 years ago, we're looking at 10, 100x growth, right? But if we compare it, the existing startup ecosystem or the existing tech ecosystem to maybe China or the US, we're looking at, you know, at least one order of magnitude in terms of needing to scale even further. But I think also one one good point that you make is that that, that leanness that is required to bring services into this market is also something that we see on the demand end as being an opportunity because given a demographic which is still extremely price sensitive at this particular income level, at this particular development stage, uh, transaction fees and intermediary fees and reductions in that really matter in terms of what is your addressable market? And I think that was something that we saw as particularly, you know, like you were saying, middleman eliminating decentralized technologies could bring to the table as being particularly useful in addressing this market. And the other thing that I think when I go to places like China or places in East Asia, which have experienced this kind of, you know, one generation uh, incredible growth story is that they always are very interested in one particular statistic that I mentioned, which is that, you know, India is a place where almost 50 percent of the individuals are under the age of 30 and a lot of East Asian countries, you know, this was where Korea was 10 years ago. This was where China was 15 years ago. And even though it's a very kind of, um, you know, high level hand waving metric, I think that this type of macro demographic of having a very young population, having very little legacy infrastructure, but having very high mobile and web penetration and having this at least in the past 10 years from telecom all the way to now to, to mobile, seeing this kind of um leapfrogging technology type behavior. It's a very interesting market, especially for markets like China or other markets in East Asia, which have experienced a similar growth trajectory and recognize kind of the um, meaningful impact of these macro demographics. But I also agree that, you know, India is an extremely competitive private market. It's not a place where the government, like it's a completely different social experiment than China, right, which is very much like uh, not necessarily anti-competitive, but a lot of it is driven by government bound capital and there's a lot of government capital flowing into infrastructure flowing into technology flowing into specifically being able to compete in the technological landscape with developed economies like the US there is no such you know huge capital reservoir from the Indian state itself but i think that in the long run this will actually prove to be more sustainable and that the type of competition we see in private markets in India will prove to actually perhaps be a more sustainable growth trajectory. We've just blasted through a whole bunch of points that I was really keen to dwell on, but that was an awesome, uh, awesome summation. Um, what's the tax base in India? Do you guys like you know? Do you know? Do you guys know what percentage of the population participate in the tax base? Would 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 you be getting at what percentage of consumers are using products that we consider part of tech companies or? Kathy just made the point that uh, in China, there's a lot of um, governmental support for the development of emerging technology. And actually, you see the same in the US with the Pentagon funding, you know, all kinds of deep tech projects, right? Like everything we're talking about here, almost all of, the, you know, you know, if you look straight from the internet, if you look at Tor, you know, this is, uh, this is all stuff that was actually developed by the US government. Um, so, as we don't have that governmental support in India that we do in the US and in China, um, what, what I'm wondering is, what is the, the state of the government and what is the, the nature of the relationship between the government and its population? And, uh, and so that leads me to wonder, what is 
the uh, the total tax catchment, I guess. Obviously, there's a population of 1.2 billion, um, but not many. That's not a very wealthy population. Yeah, um, let me try to answer that in a few in a in a few different ways. So, you know, there is uh, there is definitely government support for you know a number of uh, of technology industries, and some of it's come in the form of uh, you know like in the 80s and 90s to to sort of create zones where the IT services industry could flourish. And that led to, you know, $150 billion of, of, um, of revenue, which, which is essentially the, the Indian IT services industry. And, uh, you know, there are other pockets of innovation like defense and, and space, for example, where, you know, when you compare uh, the Indian Space Research Organization to a NASA, you know, people always find it funny that they can do so much more in, in, uh, in a budget, budget that's actually a fraction of, of what other space agencies have. And so there are some elite uh, research institutes that the government supports. And so there definitely is government support. What is not the case is, is any kind of real protectionism or any kind of advantage that the government creates for the local players which has been a big factor in China, which is, you know, the reason that that Google doesn't dominate China or, or um, you know, Amazon doesn't dam- dominate China. Um, in India, as far as consumer internet is concerned, you know, the Google of India is Google. The Facebook of India is Facebook. And um, the Amazon of India is Amazon, right? So you will have local players, but, um, but, but the foreign players and the local players and Chinese and others, it's an open competition, right? And so... That's good for the consumer. So that's what has brought, uh, you know, essentially very, very rapid growth where, uh, you know, just about five years ago when I returned to India, I mean, e- e-commerce was still very small. And, and today, you know, you do have something in the range of, um, I, I believe, you know, two million, two to three million transactions per day uh, in e-commerce and about 1.5 to 2 million uh, you know, food deliveries per day and a similar number perhaps in terms of, you know, taxi rides taken through one of the on-demand apps, right? So these things that are so mainstream, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's ride sharing, whether it's uh, food delivery and all these use cases, they're becoming very, very mainstream. So I would say that urban India is already there uh, in, for the most part. It's the next layer, which is the smaller cities, the tier two, tier three cities, which are untouched or rather relatively less touched right now and then of course there is a massive 60 percent of the population which lives in the villages right so i I don't know how you you slice and dice it uh, but you know one way to look at it is also um you know how many consumers are actually using these tech products on a day-to-day basis and i think that number is somewhere between um you know 30 and 50 million right now and of course, there is a much bigger base of people who are using more basic things like messaging, WhatsApp, email, etc. Um, and I, I guess the other angle is how many people are working in the Indian tech industry, right? And so, I think there have been a couple of million people who have worked in in sort of Indian uh, Indian uh, IT industry so far, and uh, and a portion of that is people who are now part of product startups. Uh, I don't have that exact number, but, you know, it's it's uh, it's fair to say that somewhere between two and 10 million people in India are in some way connected to the tech industry. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, on the on the supply side, there's about I mean, there's about like 
maybe three and a half million software developers in the US. And by comparison, there's almost three million software developers now in India. But I think the statistic to be interested in is that there's almost a, you know, 50 to 70% year on year increase in terms of people entering the software development profession. And that once again has to do with the drivers of the sheer supply of young people entering the workforce and perhaps the strong kind of um, engineering education that's very prominent in the Indian university and higher education level. I think that a lot of these are still in IT services and most of India's most scaled and employment generating technology businesses remain IT services. So, you know, the Wipros, the TCS, these guys are adding, you know, anywhere from 20 to 40,000 members to their payrolls every single year, right? So it's a, it's a crazy kind of scale type of technology business, but it's very much in this kind of back office service type role. But if we look back, I think, you know, in terms of what the government's role has to do in supporting this kind of, you know, decade-long growth, I would say that in the beginning it was actually quite reactionary. And we see this constant, you know, push and pull between technology and the government, specifically when India was first liberalizing its economy, it was, you know, it still followed this very Gandhian and, you know, socialist tradition of primacy of agricultural labor. And I think that they saw a lot of the technology developments um, as being something that could challenge existing labor powers and essentially automate away uh, uh, labor's crucial role in society. And that resulted in quite a bit of reactionary regulatory initiatives, including like, you know, when Infosys was being set up, they had difficulty just importing physical computers into the country because computers were seen as this, you know, evil machine that was going to automate away all these things that people were meant to do. And there, it took a lot of years of fierce, proactive lobbying of dialogue of, you know, and, and also of just like globalization and globalized change for that to change. And I think that, you know, the IT services giants have definitely paved a way and a route for other types of technology businesses to form a blueprint about how to be in dialogue with the government. But I think that there definitely still is, you know, a good amount of sometimes lack of understanding of the implications of technology, a lot of conservatism around regulating new technologies. But I think that, you know, if we had to compare it to 10, 15 years ago, obviously I was not around in India, but um, from what I hear from people who are way more experienced and have been here for a while, uh, it seems to have changed a lot. It seems like there's this, uh, there's almost this foreshadowing in the conversation we're having now of a future where uh, startups that have survived or emerged from the extremely challenging environment of, um, or the unusual environment of India, uh, may uh, go on to provide competitive offerings in external markets where we typically haven't seen disruption. But that may be a uh, in in kind of a, another era. Those are the startups that we're seeing, that we're, we're beginning to see emerge that have these new, extremely lean uh, competitive business models. And I'm wondering, what are those unique business models that are successful in India today, or that are going to drive this this next generation of Indian unicorns? Some of it is already beginning to happen. By the way, so the larger uh, funded unicorns in India, many of them are already expanding overseas. And uh, that ranges from, you know, a company called Oyo being in China to Ola being in Japan and the UK. 
to you know many other players and being in the Middle East. So that expansion is is already beginning to happen. Uh, that's come. That that's sort of one flavor, which is that once you grow to a point where you are a clear leader in India, uh, you you play the game in India and for the next set of consumers and at different price points and so on. But at the same time, if you are a strong organization and you can get funded, you can also start expanding to other markets where, in fact, the economics might be even better because consumers might be able to pay more and so on. And, uh, and, and all this while, the engineering backbone and the entire data stack can still be essentially built in India because of the you know, relative uh, cost uh, advantage, but also quality at the same time. The, the other type of uh, flavor I see is that software as a service companies or companies that are more B2B or enterprise focused, they can actually start from day one and be based in India and serve markets abroad. And that's something that's been happening for some time. You know, Freshworks, Zoho, these kinds of companies have become fairly large. Um, you know, again, unicorns that that uh, followed a different path. And they were very cognizant of the fact that the business-to-business market in India is small. But you have a tremendous advantage because all of these companies primarily spend on A, um, engineering talent, two, sales talent, and three, support talent. And if you look at it, you can get that in India at, you know, anywhere between one-third and one-fifth of the cost. So they have now proven, and there, is a, there are enough precedents that, you, I, you know, I'm, I'm an investor in an accelerator that's focused on such ventures. And you're seeing a new crop of dozens of such SaaS companies that can be built in India for markets like the U.S., and they can sell online and the buyer in the U.S. or the U.K. or Japan or anywhere may not know or care that the product is actually built in India because, uh, you know, they can sell through a combination of content marketing, SEO, SEM, those kinds of tactics, right? And, um, and one of the things that makes possible is that you can now go after more specific niches. So building a CRM for, let's say, I don't know, let's pick an example, you know, the dental services market maybe a small market to go after and somebody building in the US may not be interested, but that company could actually be built in India and capture that market, uh, you know, far more efficiently. So, so, you know, there, are, these are a couple of cases where, where this will, this is beginning to happen. The, some of the other examples that, that come to mind, uh, in my opinion would be, and, and, you know, that's why Sumo and I are spending a lot of time on, on blockchain and trying to figure out if, if some of these new decentralized Projects can emerge from India. You know, they may have developer communities all over the world, and that's a great thing. But can they actually also have a nucleus in India? And can this be the place where they build the initial developer community, right? So that opens up a whole new aspect, which is can can decentralization create a whole new crop of companies that would would fit this definition? I want to add to that, actually. I think uh, what's interesting about this present generation uh, and just to give you some context, like uh, if you if you've met Indian engineers, you realize that they're not taught like American engineers. It's not a practical based education. It's a very theoretical based education. And the four years we spend in engineering college is mostly uh, a waste of everyone's time. And uh, why I say that is because it's mostly designed 
for you to get ready to uh, go to a services company. And, uh, and, and so basically the whole, the whole system's designed for you to be printed out for services company uh, and not to innovate and not to think about new problems. But what's interesting about the, about the people coming out of college now is that they, they, they learn a lot from the internet, right? Because we, we are one of the first generations that had access to quality education from America for free. Like we could use Coursera, we could use these open MOOCs that give us cutting edge information, cutting edge technology. And uh, a lot of the people I see around me are, are, are basically just autodidacts that study online and they use open source technologies to do this. So two things there. One is the emergence of MOOCs is basically democratized education. And the second thing is open source technology has allowed us to leapfrog from the whole IP system we had before. So the product companies can basically build out of open source technologies and don't have to start from scratch. So that actually like gives them a, 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 a jump start uh, compared to what used to happen maybe 10 or 15 years back. So it's interesting to hear you say that because, um, for one, I mean, the world knows the IITs as an extremely powerful force uh, in terms of supplying extremely talented engineers. And also, you know, when I look around um, the blockchain space uh, and the time I've been here, what I've found is that there are two different sides of this. On the one hand, you have the hackers who are extremely smart who have an engineering background, but not a strong academic background. And they tend to design very clever uh, tools that are limited with a limited toolkit because they don't have that encyclopedic knowledge. And it sounds as if this is the kind of, uh, this is the kind of person that is emerging, these autodidacts, as you say, um, are, that are emerging from India. But at the same time, there's a kind of, a gap in the in the spectrum of education that's not practical but is in fact purely academic and that is that's where all of these tools of extremely advanced innovation lie and so i'm wondering if you see that as being an accurate assessment that there is potentially this uh this gap in the talent base and then the other thing is it's just interesting to hear um speak with um some degree of skepticism about the this these institutions that internationally have so much renown uh so iits are a very very small fraction of the colleges in india and uh one of the reasons why they have the smartest people is because it's one of the it's the hardest exam to write in the world i think so the the that go uh to iits basically spend two years locked up in like jail cell kind of environment studying for this one exam and uh they, they really, really like uh, are basically people that are filtered. You know, they're the creme de la creme of India, basically. So that's why IITs have the smartest people. Uh, and also IITs get funding from the government. So they, they obviously have better research facilities. But the, the, there's a, like the majority of the percentage uh, of people or graduates are from not from the IITs. They're from other colleges. Uh, and uh, those people, uh, more and more of them I see are learning uh, from meetup. Like they go to meetups, they, they, they learn from MOOCs. Um, and you can see them on online forums. You can see them on like the fast.ai courses. You can see them on Coursera asking really cool questions. So, yeah, a lot of them realize that uh, the education system is like the, the college that they go to is not the best. So they do go online uh, and, and study this. So, yeah, there is a massive gap, I'd say. IITs are definitely really good, but 
it's sort of like a self uh, it's, it's a system that basically gets the best people so you can't necessarily like uh, consider them as the benchmark for India right absolutely and it's like over you know two million people take the IIT entrance exams every year and it's something like past you know the five thousand or six thousand mark it's just completely uh it's like non-passing grades so i think that in india one thing that i realized trying for the first time to build a technology team is there's definitely a long tail education phenomenon right where like the top one percent or even you know 0.1 percent of educational institutes are world-class and competitive but the kind of distribution past that is uh a worrisomely different right and definitely requires a lot more funding and just change in curriculum and education infrastructure to be competitive at a global scale I think something else that I've noticed is uh, the theoretical research landscape in India right and there's definitely still especially in high level, you know, theoretical computer science or mathematics research, a significant brain drain of the best talent and the best researchers out of India to kind of, you know, specifically like MIT, Harvard, Stanford, right? And just the sheer amount of resources that those institutions gather, those private, you know, American institutions gather for research is just, you know, orders of magnitude away from the Indian research space. So I think there's definitely a lot of ways to go. But at the same time, through our kind of crusade through India looking for researchers, I've also definitely found pockets of really amazing research that is being done, usually by professors that maybe have more personal reasons for staying in the country. For instance, um, we're in contact with a researcher at a professor at TIFR who is originally at Harvard doing, you know, probabilistic checkable proofs and doing zero knowledge shrinking with um, Bin Sassoon and a lot of the founding team members of Zcash and a lot of the kind of early um, frontier researchers in that space. He's at TIFR now, which is a, a, a theoretical research institute in Mumbai. But I would say that, you know, whether it's from the research standpoint in higher education or from just the un- undergraduate engineering standpoint, it's really, you know, brain drain is still an issue and kind of the long tail phenomenon is like, you know, absolutely ginormous. So with that said, can we take a quick look at the uh, at the regulation space in India? Because it's certainly renowned for not being friendly to public blockchain. And uh, I'd really like to get an understanding of, of why that is and uh, the exact type of, I guess, unfriendliness that we're having to deal with. Sure. Uh, uh, Sumuk and I have been looking at this, uh, and, and I'm sure everybody in Indian blockchain in the space has been um, has been looking at this in different ways <coughs> for the last, especially the last six months. So, you know, I would say that at, at, at the at the outset, the the Indian government, especially the current regime, is generally seen as fairly pro business and pro innovation and. I actually do give them a lot of credit for being right on, you know, a lot of things, especially relative to governments in the past or governments in other countries like India, right? So I don't think that the that that anyone wants to paint uh, the whole picture with with a brush of saying the government in India is not uh, or the regulatory environment is not pro innovation. So they've done a lot of things well, and some of the things we were talking about earlier in the podcast could not have actually happened without also you know enabling infrastructure especially around 
digital payments, which have really taken off in India um, to, you know, identity linked uh, public distribution systems and uh, and a push towards, uh, you know, innovation in various other forms. I think when it comes to blockchain, the general message is we love blockchain and we want to adopt blockchain in as many ways as possible within, you know, uh, public service delivery within areas like agriculture, healthcare, education, etc. So like I was saying earlier, pretty much every state government and the central government in India has experimented or beginning to do a pilot or a proof of concept around different use cases. And so all that is great. The issue is when it comes to crypto. And of course, that's not unique to India. Every other country has gone through that uh, evolution where the regulators have struggled with it because it's such a new thing. I think specifically when it comes to India, the, the challenge has been that unlike China, we didn't, op- we didn't really embrace this space uh, or allow this space to, space to flourish for a number of years. So, you know, you didn't have the mining uh, infrastructure or public funding or IP or patent creation or, you know, the hardware and the, the chips industry that China has. So none of that wealth generation actually came to India in any form. It finally started to appear on the scene when somewhere between two and five million, you know, investors in, in retail investors in India started understanding and, and buying Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, essentially starting from 2016 onwards in a big way when demonetization happened, right? Which is when the government with the when the government essentially uh, took 86% of currency out of circulation uh, for a while and, you know, essentially had to re-monetize with new currency. So that's when a lot of people woke up to this idea that, hey, maybe there is a space for another asset uh, that we need to park our wealth in or Maybe there are questions around, you know, the value of money and, and so on and so forth. Now, at the same time, when the, the space was beginning to boom, you, you had enough uh, concerns as well. So there have been some Ponzi schemes, some incidents of, uh, you know, small investors being taken advantage of, people who didn't really know the difference between Bitcoin and something else that sounded like coin uh, being duped. And uh, so on and so forth, right? And so I think the government's concerns primarily come down to three things. Like One is money laundering and tax evasion and perhaps crime financing. The second is investor protection. And the third is uh, potentially, you know, flight of capital from the country, which became a serious issue in China. So, you know, they they felt it was important for them to understand the issue and, and then decide what to do. Unfortunately, that learning process was very, very slow. And for a long time, they were just giving uh, mixed signals saying, we caution people. We don't believe that these are valid ways of payment. This is not legal tender. And all of that was perfectly fine uh, until suddenly in April, they felt it was important to do something stronger, which is to cut crypto, uh, you know, banking access to crypto entities of any kind, which means exchanges or other projects which were based on public blockchains or ICOs and so on and so forth. So while it's not technically a ban, it's essentially cutting the oxygen off from the ecosystem as far as public blockchains are concerned. And um, so, you know, 
that that's sort of the background and the 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 challenge is that for a country like india specifically with regards to our strengths in terms of the talent the it ecosystem the need for capital the need for jobs the need for innovation right it's even more important for the scale that india has that we don't get left out of the public blockchain revolution right? and so one of the things that we've been trying to do is to is to educate stakeholders regulators around what tokens or crypto assets are and sometimes it's semantics right we we're thinking of these as currencies or being worried about speculative aspects of these things but also understanding at the same time that crypto assets play a really critical role in the very functioning of the public blockchains in the very incentive mechanisms that make developers participate in the actual governance of these things in the actual security of these things right so we're this this stuff which is one on one for folks like us who are in the space where we're making sure that we are bringing them up to speed about the technology aspects of it so that it's not just about worrying about those risks but also protecting all of the good things that can happen in the in the technology ecosystem or for startups in the space to put uh, to put, to add some context to what nitin was talking about i think like uh, one of the statistics that was recently released was uh, the uh, so uh, last year the uh, bitconnect ponzi scheme took 3 billion dollars from india so there's there's definitely the, the government is right right like we don't need trading and the largest conversation has been around uh, the exchanges have been pushing their agenda right they've been trying to say that you know like these are cryptocurrencies they're the future and the, the the angle is you know these are speculative assets and people need to trade it uh but what they're missing is the angle of the innovation the uh, the amount of innovation that blockchains are going to unlock and uh, what can be developed over them are just not currencies but like microgrids data marketplaces things that can change our economy uh basically and that's what encrypt's trying to do it's trying to like educate them on like how uh this technology can actually change transform india um and bring up yeah bring about the web 3.0 basically um if anyone's interested in looking at the policy paper we've written they can go to encrypt.co/policy uh and we've spent about 3 3 to 4 months just drafting that whole paper yeah that's a shameless plug but very very important to learn more about developments in india visit encrypt.co that's i n c r y p t.co and dunyalabs.io that's d u n y a l a b s.io thanks for listening to the third web subscribe on itunes soundcloud spotify or youtube and follow on twitter at the third web thank you